Odd Trails contains adult language and content. These stories can be frightening for some. Listener discretion is advised. If you have a story to share, send it to stories at oddtrails.com. Enjoy the show. Forget facts. Forget logic. Forget everything that seems real. Just trust. Believe. About five summers ago, I was working as a biological field technician in Grand Canyon National Park and got to help my coworkers do some data collection on sinkholes. These weren't the swallow you whole in a split second kind of sinkholes, but slowly forming ones, some as deep as 50 feet with huge pine trees growing out of the middle of them. To get to these sites, we had to drive an hour down a barely maintained forest road to the middle of nowhere, park the car, and then follow the GPS to a point in the middle of the forest. Because you need a four-wheel drive vehicle with high clearance, and most people come to the Grand Canyon to see the canyon, you only see a few cars out there per day. Let me also say, there was no cell phone service. They sent us out without a radio and we were two scrawny, 120-pound females. The purpose of our trip was to measure infiltration rates of water in sinkholes. I won't bore you with the details, but we had to record how long it took for water to infiltrate completely into the soil when poured into a tall tube. We had two tubes set up, and they were draining slow, so we decided that we would take turns making trips to the car for more water while one of us monitored the infiltration setup. The car was only 200 meters away, roughly two football fields. It was out of sight, but really only through a bunch of trees and down a hill. I hiked to the car and was back in 15 minutes. Then my coworker, Sammy, took her turn to the car. After 20 minutes, I started wondering where she was. After 25 minutes, I was starting to get worried. At this point, one of the tubes was almost empty, so I didn't know if I should leave to find her or wait until it emptied so I could record the time. This was her experiment, and she was responsible for the results, so I didn't want to screw them up because I was overreacting. Anyways, again, the car was only 200 meters away. I didn't think that she could have gotten lost, so I was just thinking maybe she took her 15-minute afternoon break in the car. Then a realization hit me. As Sammy was leaving, I was in the sinkhole and caught a small glimpse of her and thought I remembered her leaving in a dark blue shirt. I kept waiting for her to come back, looking through the trees for a blue shirt, but I had remembered that she was actually wearing a gray shirt. 
I really started freaking out and decided that I needed to go look for her. So I started walking south towards the car, but immediately heard something moving in the forest to my right. I called her name. No response. I'm alone in what literally feels like the middle of the woods, so I grab the only weapon we have, a rubber mallet that we use to pound the tubes into the ground. I heard more snapping of branches, and out pops a deer running right toward me. I start hollering and waving the mallet around, trying to scare it because it's really freaking me out, but it just keeps coming right at me. Thinking maybe Sammy scared it towards me, I kept calling her name and making a lot of sound trying to scare the deer because it's running around me, all crazy and confused now. It finally stopped 20 feet from me and just stared at me, eventually coming to its senses and running off, so I decided to continue to head in the direction of the car because if Sammy had scared the deer towards me, she would have heard all my commotion and come out already. By this time, Sammy had been missing for 40 minutes. I see the car down the hill. I start scanning for an injured Sammy, shouting her name, but there's nothing. A couple of cars had driven by when we first got to the site, so they had seen us. Two scrawny girls in the middle of nowhere. We were easy pickings. At this point, I'm convinced she had been abducted. I got to the car and kept calling her name and finally in response to my shouting, I heard what sounded like someone banging one piece of wood against another, as in a way to draw attention. It was coming from down the road a little bit, but up a hill. I'm thinking it has to be her, that she fell, she got hurt. I start down the road in the direction of the sound, peering up the hill into the woods. I called her name, and the sound answers with a knock. Then two more knocks. But she's not answering verbally. Then I saw what looked like someone crouching in a dark blue shirt, and a thought goes through my head. That wasn't Sammy I caught a glimpse of leaving. Someone had followed us out to the sinkhole. When it's in my line of sight, the banging stopped. In the craziest, freaked-out state, I was sure it was a man trying to draw me towards him. I ran back in the direction of our car, got in, locked it, and looked around frantically for the keys because I had no cell service and I needed to drive somewhere to get some. But Sammy had the keys, so now, I guess, he might have them. At this point, Sammy had been missing for an hour. In my mind, he had obviously taken her. I'm stuck and needed to find a better weapon in the car. I kept looking in the car's rearview mirror for the guy to come. After another 20 minutes, I see a gray shirt exhaustedly trudging up the road towards me. Sammy. I jumped out of the car and I ran to her. She seems pretty embarrassed, but other than that, she's fine. She had just gotten lost. She couldn't find the sinkhole site and was calling my name, and she thought she heard me responding, which pulled her further and further east of the sinkhole and deeper into the woods. Now that person in the blue shirt, 
It must have been a shadow playing on my eyes, right? The crazed deer that came out of the trees and made a beeline for me? Animals can be weird. The knocking sound? Well, that, I can't quite explain, and thinking about it still twists my stomach into knots. I've been an avid outdoors person my whole life, and it didn't sound anything like a woodpecker. But perhaps it was, and it was just a coincidence that seemed like her responding to me. So whoever or whatever was in the forest that day, let's not meet. To preface this story, I feel it is important to know that I am far from the only one to experience these events. In fact, the house where these events took place was a part of my family for close to 50 years before it was sold. To get the whole scope of the story, it has to start with when it first came into my family. It was around 1965. My family had just moved back to Oregon from Canada. The house sat in rural Oregon on a 10-acre lot, an hour drive from the nearest town. There were neighbors, but it was quite a walk to reach any of them. All of the bordering neighbors were elderly and long since retired. That being said, I may jump around a little on the timeline, but will try to make it as coherent and relevant as possible. I fully believe the house sat on some kind of portal or that long-dead things were feeding on the negativity put off by so many terrible acts occurring on the property. The house was two stories with a basement and detached garage that had a room above it, the same size as the garage itself. My grandfather's office led to the outside and across from it was my mother's childhood room that had a loft. From there, there was the hallway with the bathroom and then my grandparents' room by the stairs. Outside at the back of the house was a patch of forest that we owned. I would regularly find toys at the edge of this forest, half submerged in the dirt. They were from all eras, some very new and recent, and some that my grandmother would have played with. My mother was always confused when I came to the house with new toys that I had found, but relented and would let me play with them. To the right of the house, there was a smaller garden with a seating area, and then a field where my grandparents would let their friends' horses graze. To the left, my grandmother's garden extended to the end of their property, with a path of grass and a deer fence separating it from the forest's edge. My mother was a young teenager when they moved down from Canada. Throughout her life, she came to find that people she would later regard as evil were inexplicably drawn to the house. The first major incident was her friend Mary. They were as close as sisters, and coming from a bad home, Mary even began living at the house with my mother for some time. Being away from home didn't seem to bother Mary. In fact, the only thing she felt any hesitancy about leaving behind were her pigs, which she bred for local competitions. Shortly after Mary moved in, things started to happen. 
My mother would receive calls on the landline in my grandfather's office at night. My grandfather was often away on business, leaving this room vacant. The caller on the other side of the line would breathe into the phone and tell my mother they were watching her that very moment. They would describe where she was standing in the room, what she was doing, and other terrifying details that they shouldn't have known unless they had been in the house. Completely unnerved by this, my mother jumped at the opportunity to study abroad in France for six months before coming back to finish out her senior year of high school. While she was abroad, Mary continued to live with the family. The house caught fire for the first time while my mother was overseas. The office was entirely destroyed, while the rest of the house was relatively unscathed. When my mother returned from her time abroad, she was thrown right back into the chaos she had tried to leave behind. At school, the two of them started to find terrible threats and obscenities both in and outside of their lockers. They went to the front office and, upon explaining the circumstance, asked to be set up with different lockers. They changed lockers a total of three times but were never to escape the abuse. It was especially hard on Mary as she was devoutly religious and refused to swear. To see such harsh language brought her to tears every time. Soon enough, the writing on their lockers and the threats stopped. Instead, dead animals were now appearing within the locked lockers, which is even more unnerving considering they didn't give out the combinations to anyone but each other. Things came to a head when Mary returned to her home to find the prize-winning pigs she had bred, which she prided herself on, were slaughtered. Their throats had been brutally slit, and blood covered the ground. She immediately called the police and told them about the harassment her and my mother had been experiencing. An investigation was launched and even the FBI got involved. Later that week, my mother was pulled out of school to be questioned by an agent. At the end of their engagement, he revealed to my mom that they had found the person responsible for everything she had gone through. It was all Mary. She was later diagnosed with a personality disorder and admitted. My mother visited her once and gifted her with a stuffed armadillo, but never saw her again after that. The second person fixated on the house was my father. An interesting tidbit is that long before my father was even a thought, my great-grandfather on his side lived remarkably close to the house. We found this out several years after my parents separated as we kept in contact with my paternal grandparents. So close, in fact, that when looking up the address, we found the streets had been renumbered after their family had moved, and they were likely only a few houses down, but still sharing the forest where my maternal grandparents would later settle. Why did they move, you may ask? My great-grandmother had gathered up her children in a hurry and moved across the country following her husband's suicide. This fact is a dark stain on my family's history and only known by my mother, grandparents, and myself. This will also be relevant, though I must admit in a way I never expected. My father was a manipulative and abusive piece of human garbage. 
He would bring underage girls to the house long after my parents separated to do unspeakable things to them in my grandfather's now reconstructed office and would later send my mother pictures taunting that she wasn't safe and he could still get in no matter how many precautions were taken. During a custody battle, he kidnapped me from the property and attempted to flee state lines. He had the audacity to call my grandparents and tell them they would never see me again, resulting in my grandfather's first heart attack. He was caught and had all parental rights stripped of him, but he was still a nasty individual with his rap sheet only growing with the years. I know all of what I've written so far can be chalked up to bad judgments of character on my mother's part, but as we are about to get into the paranormal, I wanted to show the type of terrible people that I believe may have been affected or added to the overall energy that afflicted the house itself. My mother moved away from Oregon after winning full custody and took me and my two older brothers to Arizona. We visited my grandparents' house every summer which was a welcomed retreat compared to the Arizona heat. One of these summers marked the first notable encounter, since most of the family was present for it. They were gathered in my mother's old room on the second story, which sat across from the office, and hosted a loft above the closet, which we kids weren't allowed anywhere near due to fear of us falling. My brother Jason, the middle child, was tucked into bed with my grandparents and mother all around him to say nighttime prayers. Jason looked up towards the loft and innocently asked if he was going to join them and pointed to the loft. Everyone's heads whipped up towards the loft, only to find it completely empty. When my mom asked who he meant, my brother said, The man who's sitting up there, he has horns and a tail. He's watching us. Startled by this, my family began to pray, and when they finished, asked Jason if he could still see the man. Jason said, no, he left. He looked really angry. Even though we were only usually there for the summers, that didn't stop the nightmares that we would have year-round. They were always the same, but played out in two or three different spots on the property. The biggest hot spot was an area right by the edge of the forest, which we referred to as the spot where the old dog kennel was, as it was the best way to identify it. The dog kennel had been there since my grandparents moved into the house. We even tried keeping our Labrador there many years later, but he would always find a way to escape, despite being boxed in from all sides. In the nightmares, we would always see pure black creatures coming out of that exact spot watching us, and then charging the house where we stood. Sometimes they were more humanoid. Other times they were more animalistic and resembled bears. The next most common dream wasn't shared by all of my siblings, but as I later found out, only my oldest brother and I. When I was old enough to understand, he sat me down with this look of relief, but also concern, and told me that for years, he had nightmares that the field outside the house was burning. It had gone up in flames and swallowed up indistinguishable objects and creatures along with it. He felt like he was going crazy because the dream would repeat for him night after night. Until one night, I was startled awake. 
I was so young, this was one of the first times I was able to recount dreams in a coherent way. All I said was, the field's on fire, and he knew he wasn't alone anymore. The last dream was of the upstairs in general, of either being watched from above while standing at the bottom of the stairs, or being chased by an unseen entity from one of the rooms while passing by. With all of the experiences we started to have and feelings of general unease, my siblings and one of my cousins who also frequented devised an unspoken map of what places were safe at which times. The upstairs was safe during the day, as long as you weren't alone. At night, feelings of being watched and general feelings of fight or flight and dread would set in no matter how many people were there. The downstairs was always safe, as long as you didn't stare out at the forest at night and all the doors were locked. There was one sliding door that we would always hear being opened and closed with no one immediately next to it, but it didn't bother anyone, so we let it be. Things would still happen downstairs. Items would be moved or missing inexplicably, but compared to the upstairs, it felt similar to having a forgetful, invisible family member. The spot where the dog kennel used to be was off-limits anyways. None of us would go there whether in a group or alone, and especially not at night. It was as if it had its own barrier around it. We had to pass by it to get to different points of my grandmother's garden, but we'd go in a deliberate path to stay as far away from it as possible. We would hardly even look in its direction. Even though they never said anything, I know for a fact my grandparents had experiences there. I tried to watch a scary movie with a friend in my grandparents' room when I was a preteen and was immediately stopped and pulled aside by my grandfather. He told me in a very serious tone that watching things like that opened a door and had potential to let things in that otherwise wouldn't have a chance. Looking back on it, he seemed more afraid than angry. Most of my family was under the belief that acknowledging things they didn't understand gave power to those things. So by not talking about them and pretending things didn't happen, you would be safe. A belief system I would call BS on in my later years, as not talking about these things made me feel isolated and alone in my experiences when I found out later that was definitely not the case. There were occurrences they were unable to shrug off, though. My cousin Lila was in high school at the time and had invited a friend over with plans to cook dinner for my grandparents. Her friend Jacqueline was a kind girl with beautiful long black hair and a kind smile. The dinner went off without a hitch. Jackie and Lila left shortly after cleaning up. The next day during class, Lila received a call from my grandmother, who seemed unnerved and asked why her friend had come back to the house. Lila was confused and asked why she would think Jacqueline had returned to the house. My grandmother said, A girl with long black hair walked into her bathroom and took a shower before wandering around upstairs, soaking wet. Lila immediately called up Jacqueline, demanding to know where she was and asking if she had gone to the house unannounced. Jacqueline was in school 
she took a picture of herself in class and messaged back that she wouldn't even remember the way back to my grandparents' house as it was over an hour from where she lived. Lila called my grandmother back to tell her it wasn't her friend in the house. Before she could tell my grandma to call the police or get help, my grandma said rather distantly that she must have been mistaken in assuming it was her friend or that maybe she just saw something before hanging up the phone abruptly. Another incident occurred one summer when my mother and Jacqueline were woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of blood-curdling screams. They rushed out onto the porch, my brother sporting my grandfather's rifle. Something big and dark was sprinting across the lawn with a fully grown pig in its mouth. My brother looked through the gun scope to get a better look at the creature when it ran straight up a lone tree and disappeared. In the morning, they went to the tree and, to their surprise, found branches broken all the way up to the very tip of the tree, but no sign of anything else. None of the neighbors owned pigs either. The next summer we visited, I brought a friend with me from Arizona. She refused to sleep in the house and instead slept in my grandparents' camper, which was parked out by the field. Even with her sleeping somewhere else, my mother enacted strict curfews. My mother was woken up at around midnight one night to the sound of someone singing in the garden below her window. She immediately thought it was my friend and stormed over to the camper to confront her with the Our House, Our Rules speech, only to find her dead asleep in the camper. Every night for the rest of the summer, my mother would hear singing in the garden starting at around midnight and going until four in the morning. She tried to record it, or wake up one of us to come hear it, but to no avail. When the house caught fire again, it was the garage that burnt. Fog covered the area where the house was so heavily that the firefighters passed the house several times before finally being able to find it and put out the flames. When inspected, it was concluded that it had caught fire due to an issue with one of the cars. In the aftermath of the fire, my aunt went into the garage to inspect the remains of the cars. She found that the frame around the windshield of one of the cars had burned into the shape of a cross. She pulled it out and showed the entire family, claiming God must have watched over them. Lila was with her when she found it, and swears to this day that it was upside down when her mother discovered it. The garage was rebuilt, but separated from the house this time. It also had a room the size of the garage on top of it, which had a direct path to the second floor of the house and stairs along the side to get to the first level. During my sophomore year of high school, my grandparents were steadily declining in health. They were no longer to go up and down the stairs in their home, in order to ease this transitional period in their life, my mother moved us to Oregon, where we stayed in the house with them for a year. We redid the downstairs into a bedroom and made the house overall more accessible. Then we helped them start thinking about the possibility of downsizing or consolidating, as they would likely have to be somewhere with more accessible health care in the coming years. Jack had already moved out on his own at this time. 
Jason and I were allowed to choose any of the rooms upstairs to act as our rooms while we were there. Being a teenager, I wanted privacy and saw the room above the garage as just that. I was a well-behaved kid. I would never dream of sneaking out, drinking, or getting caught up in anything like that. But having just moved several states away from where I had lived for most of my life, I wanted some space. I was shocked when Jason didn't object whatsoever, but decided not to question it. Jason ended up choosing the office for his room. It was in the room above the garage that I started to have a new nightmare. In this one, I dreamt about being on the second floor of the house and finding a small opening to an attic. I would crawl in and immediately feel like I needed to hide because I was not alone. I was overwhelmed by waves of hatred and malice that was coming off of some unknown force. The room was covered in random old items, but I always knew there was something I had to search for, and if I found it, I would be okay. This something was an antique cloth doll, which on one side was the grandma from the Little Red Riding Hood, but upon turning it over, it would reveal a wolf wearing the same clothing items as the other side. I told my mom about this dream recently. We haven't stepped foot in the house in over five years now. I told her I was confused because the house didn't have an attic, so I couldn't understand why in my dreams there was this extra room that never existed. She went pale. Apparently, before the garage had burned down, there was a secret storage room in the space above it. When you entered the room, you wouldn't have been able to see it. She described it as more of a small hidden door that they would use for storing items that they weren't using. Notably, toys from as far back as when my mom was a child. When the garage and the room above it had been rebuilt, they designed it to build out to where the room had been and followed the slope of the roof, but sealed off the sloped area to make the room more symmetrical. To this day, I don't know if the doll from my nightmares exists anywhere but my own mind, but I do know I was dreaming about a room I had never seen before, which was rebuilt as the room I would come to inhabit. Even as I got older, I hated being upstairs alone. On more than one occasion, I would hear whispers that would grow closer, almost close enough to make out, but right before it seemed like they could be deciphered, they would quickly move away and start up again, as if beckoning you to follow. I never entertained the idea of doing a game of chase with disembodied voices when I already didn't want to be up there. I really did try to ignore everything that happened for as long as I could. I refused to leave my room when it was dark out, despite the nearest bathroom being in the main house. It seemed like being upstairs alone had become a surefire way for some kind of harassment to ensue. As such, any business I had in the main house had to be done before sunset or wait until morning. To get to the bathroom, I would have to pass through the office while both coming and going. Often Jason would leave the door unlocked for me until nightfall. One day as the sun was setting, I made the trip to the main house. Jason had his headphones on and was focused on his computer when I passed through. On my way back out to my room, however, he banged his fist on his desk 
furious. He began to shout that he wanted to be left alone and to stop fucking with him or he would lose his shit. I was dumbstruck. Jason was and still is my best friend and one of the most gentle people I know. I stepped towards him, a little nervous, and asked him who he was talking to. He ripped off his headset and turned to me, his eyes wild. When he saw me, he relaxed and sat back in his chair a little, rubbing his eyes. He looked exhausted and said he thought I was something else and that I should just get to my room and go to sleep. I don't know what harassed him or what he saw while staying in the office, but I know that whatever it was had terrified him and consumed most of his waking hours with paranoia and fear. Now for the real kicker. The worst thing to happen to me in all the years we spent on that property. August 21st, 2017. The day of Oregon's solar eclipse, and we were in the path of totality. At this point in time, my grandparents had agreed to downsize and had put the house up for sale, but offered for anyone interested to spend one more night there the day of the eclipse for one last hoorah. Jason, my mom and I had since moved out of the house now that my grandparents were practically moved. To anyone listening to this, I acknowledge that what I'm about to tell you is a series of mistakes and I also wish I hadn't chosen to do the things I did. But now you get to hear about the results of the worst decisions my young mind could make. Being out of the house, I was starting to second guess the experiences I had up to that point. I was sure I was just a dumb kid who was blowing things out of proportion. In fact, I was so sure that I decided to not only stay the night at the house, but to set up a tent at the edge of the forest, right where the old dog kennel used to be. I invited my boyfriend Matt, who I had been with for almost two years at that point, to stay with me in the tent. It's important to know that I never told him any of what happened in the house, or that we could be camping on a hot spot for the supernatural activity that haunted my childhood. Lila and Jason also decided to stay the night, but when I told them where I would be staying, they laughed and said they would be as far away from there as possible, but wished me luck. That evening started off pretty normal. We all had dinner together and joked around. The atmosphere was light and happy. The moment the sun started to go down, however, Lila and Jason bolted to where they were sleeping, leaving me alone with Matt. We snuggled into our sleeping bags and talked for a while before trying to sleep. It had been a few hours when Matt nudged me a little and asked, Do you hear that? Me being ever skeptical and knowing he knew nothing about the property, wrote this off as him being a teenage boy trying to scare me despite Matt never really acting that way before or being the type to pull a prank. I brushed him off and told him to go to sleep. We were by the woods, there were going to be weird noises. After some more time, he nudged me again and repeated his question, asking if I was fucking with him and really didn't hear the noise. I decided to give a little more weight to his question and asked him what he was hearing. He described it as a buzzing or zapping noise. He said it started off sounding like it was far away in the woods, but was getting closer. I tried to listen, but told him I genuinely didn't hear anything. 
he pointed towards where he claimed to hear the noise coming from and asked if I could see it. He described a light coming from the forest. At least an acre going into the forest was private land, so I told him it couldn't have been a flashlight. He seemed unsettled, and I began to worry. Matt is diabetic, and I began to think that maybe he was having an issue with his health, but was disoriented because of the environment. I made him check and double-check his blood sugar, but both tests came back in normal ranges. In a scared voice, he told me he could feel his feet. As a side effect of his diabetes, he had limited circulation in his feet, a condition called neuropathy. He hadn't been able to feel his feet in years. This condition is also not reversible. I set alarms to regularly have him check his blood sugar through the night, far more frequently than he usually would. Feeling a false sense of security in this, I went back to sleep. The next time he woke me up, he grabbed me by my shoulders and started to shake me. He had a look of unadulterated horror on his face, on the verge of tears. He was talking very loudly, as if talking over another noise, and was begging, pleading to say I was messing with him and could hear it too. He said it was the loudest thing he had heard in his entire life, and it was right outside our tent. He covered his ears, letting out a small whine of pain. I held him until he eventually fell back asleep. I wasn't scared, but I believed that he was truly experiencing something, and I stayed awake in case he needed me again. Matt claims to have no memory of what happened next, but I know that it will always be burned into my memory. From a dead sleep, he sat upright and pointed out towards the woods. I killed myself in those woods, he said before proceeding to describe the gun he used in detail, all the way down to the type of bullet, perfectly matching the type my paternal grandfather had used on himself in those woods all those years ago. Matt calmly laid back down and didn't wake up for the rest of the night. In the morning, I asked him what he remembered from the night. He said he remembered the light getting closer and then was surrounded by the most vivid yellow light he has ever seen. I had never told him about my great-grandfather, much less that he took his own life in that same forest. Matt and I married a few years later, and if you ask him, he'll say that this wasn't one of the scariest supernatural experiences he's had, but swears he's never seen a brighter yellow than the light he saw in the woods which then surrounded our tent that night. His neuropathy returned a few days after this incident, and I have since told him the full story of the house. But one thing is for certain. I wasn't just being an imaginative child when all these incidents happened, though I fear I may have invited some unwanted things into my life in the pursuit of this realization. I had a friend named Keith, who was my best friend. We had done tons of stuff together. We were both in the army, we were both private security contractors, and the list goes on and on. When we met, 
We found out we literally only lived 10 minutes from each other. Our birthdays were literally one day apart. He and I were on all kinds of contracts, hundreds together, from the Middle East to stuff here states-wide. We were practically inseparable. We had so many common interests from sports, video games, guns, and motorcycles. Keith and I at one point decided to start a motorcycle club. Fast forward a bit after some semantics, and we were both part of the largest motorcycle club in the world. It was just another shared experience between he and I. A little while later, I needed to leave the club for personal matters. I needed more time with my family. Well, I went out of the club on good terms, which meant I was able to still do things like normal, just no patch. Keith and I maintained contact, no matter if I was on a contract or was just away for any period of time. There were always texts, calls, and updates on goings-on. I had just returned from a maritime contract of three months. I went on a bike night right away to hang out with my buddy. Everything was normal, no weird surprises. But here's the weird part. I was lying in bed a few days after this bike night when suddenly I started getting insanely intense chest pains. Now I'm 38, and outside of being a little overweight, my health is in great condition. I regularly see my doctor at the VA, and I have zero notion for alarm. Alongside of that, I'm a licensed paramedic, so I'm quite familiar with the signs and symptoms that accompany any cardiac conditions. These chest pains were so intense, I was on the ground, rolling. They were all over my left side, and being a medic, I started to diagnose myself. Am I having radiating symptoms? No. It's localized. Can I reproduce or cause rebound tenderness? It's not hurting when I apply pressure. So in my head, I just waited out. Well, the pain lasted approximately 25 minutes, and the aspirin, whether psychosomatic or not, was starting to kick in. I finally passed out, only to wake up to a phone call at 7 a.m. I ignore the phone and go back to sleep. Then, at around 8 o'clock, I get another. So I answer this time. It's my friend Keith's cousin. He tells me Keith was killed last night. Now, I'm not a religious person. I'm certainly a skeptic of the paranormal. But what are the odds that right around the same time my best friend was shot and killed, I would have the worst chest pains I ever felt? Maybe it's just me, but I like to think that my friend was trying to tell me something. I'm not sure what, or if there may be a correlation, but if there is, I miss you, buddy, and I'll join you in the halls of Valhalla one day. Rest in peace, Keith. Rest in peace, Keith. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. I think I'm more drawn to premonitions like these rather than alleged hauntings and ghost sightings. We hear of elderly couples dying of heartbreak, so I don't think it's too off-base for a couple of best friends to share these similar wavelengths. You get this with some of your let's-not-meet stories, don't you? 
like a friend or family member gets a sixth sense that their loved one is in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I get stories like that all the time, man. In a similar vein, have you seen the stories of twins who have died at the same time? Like on the same day and everything? I'm vaguely familiar with some of those stories, yeah. Yeah, I just read about these 90-year-old twins who died two hours apart on Christmas Day. And another where these 92-year-old twins both died the same day of heart failure. Whoa. So, yeah. damn, do you think it's like they died of heartbreak? You know, how a husband and wife does? Or do you think that because they're twins, there's something more supernatural going on there. I think there's some synchronicity there. I've heard stories of these. I don't know how true it is. Again, these are just, there's like this joke of, oh, I read in an article. Who's that guy who did Insomniac? Remember that show? Yeah. David Tell. <laughs> yeah. He has a stand-up bit. He's like, oh, I read in an article. It just makes what you're saying so much more legitimate, totally. but it's true. I, I read in an article. Well, I don't want to sound like a complete asshole, but I did read this one thing in an article a long time ago about the Hodden <laughs> twins, but it's like a pretty popular story. They were, uh, I think it was like in the sometime in the 2000s, just these teenagers and two girls they were twins and one of them just had this gut feeling that something was wrong she said she never like felt like that before and she ran upstairs or i don't know she ran to go check on her sister somewhere and she was right like her her gut feeling was right her sister was having some kind of seizure in the bathtub whoa yeah and if it weren't for that gut feeling just something telling her that something was wrong she didn't hear anything or anything like that it was just like this telepathic connection to her twin that sent her running to to the rescue even though she didn't know what was going on Mm -hmm. i think that stuff there's something to it obviously because there uh, there's story after story if you just dive in the uh, because i've done it before you just do a deep dive on the internet and you're going to find all kinds of twin telepathy stories they say that somewhere around one-fifth of all twins have experiences with telepathy yeah it's insane it's a huge number what I was about to say in the article I read <laughs> was that there's these two twins that were in a separate room and one they were told to write something down and the other twin guessed what the other twin wrote but it was it was like a prompt where they couldn't have like pre-planned it it was wild yeah the that kind of stuff is super wild that's like the Robert Monroe stuff where he would leave his body and he would go visit friends and stuff and he would see them doing things. And then later on, he would ask them like, there's a story and I've talked about this on the Drinking the Kool-Aid podcast. There's a story where Robert Monroe, who's famous for his out-of-body experiences and his books and stuff and the Monroe Institute. There was a story where he left his body, went over to his friend's house and he was watching them passing around playing cards at the table but they're like these oversized cards oh yeah yeah i remember that i think i told you about this because mm-hmm. i was super obsessed with his book and then the next day he asked his friend about it and he was like no we weren't oh you know what that was mail time we have family mail time where i go get the mail we sit around the table and we pass around the envelopes to everybody to everyone that got mail mm-hmm. you you were visiting me while we were doing that and you you got mail <laughs> you got mail you perceived it as playing cards and he would do things where he would have somebody write something down and he would go look at it and then he would tell them what they wrote down and he would be able to do that just by leaving his body so yeah it's not it's not completely outlandish to think that something like that could happen with twins let alone best friends so if I ever suddenly become allergic to my cats, I'll assume you're being held hostage by the Yakuza at a cat cafe in Tokyo. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> Charging me $5 to pet the cats. <laughs> yeah. 
There's a place in Salt Lake City that does that. I refuse to go there. I would never. You can't Hell charge no. me to pet the cats, man. I've got cats everywhere in my neighborhood. But yeah, it's weird how twins can even feel physical ailments of their other twins. Like when they get hurt, they have like sympathy pains, like they can feel it too. Just like in that story, that guy felt that sharp pain in his chest and he had a good bill of health. Mm -hmm. Um, It might not just be twins, just people that are meant to be connected. Yeah, I had an experience where I woke up from sleep paralysis and I had a really bad pain in my chest. And the next day, my mom told me And I thought she was just telling me this to scare me, but she told me that she had a dream that there was a a black figure, just this shadowy person following me around everywhere that I went. Like, that was her dream. That reminds me of the black hand story. Yes. Not to scare you too much. No, no, no. I know. That's why I love that story and uh, why I wanted to include it on the best of because it hit me pretty, pretty close to home. Because, yeah, when my mom told me that, I remember telling our friend Matt about it. And he was like, she's just trying to scare you. And I'm like, yeah, but I woke up from sleep paralysis with a pain in my chest that same night. And, you know, sleep paralysis is often associated with shadow people, which is basically what she described. And it it was a synchronicity thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She had that same exact dream, the same exact time I felt the pain in my chest. It's crazy, man. It is. Hello, crazy tight shit. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. So do you ever have, they call it psychic phone phenomena? Psychic phone? You mean phantom phone? Like the phantom vibrating? No, 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 no. I've had that before too, where you think your phone vibrates in your pocket and you look and there was nothing there. Like, oh yeah, nobody loves me after all. No, it's psychic phone phenomena. It's when you think of somebody and they call you or text you. Oh yeah. Everybody has this at some point in their life. You can ask anybody. They're like, oh yeah, that's definitely happened to me. I'm just thinking of somebody and they randomly text me, email me or call me. That happened to me recently. You know, my buddy in Alaska who I talked to like very infrequently, I was wondering how he was doing, but I'm not good with phones and all that. And that same day, he calls me wanting to play some video games. That was really cool. Yeah, you know, they say synchronicity is more than just a really good album by the police. Who says that? Who's they? (laughs) Me, I made it up. (laughs) Oh, that's cute. Love that for you. Anyways, thanks everybody for listening. This week you have heard the day I thought I was going to die by Jenny. Multi-generational misadventures by Aristotle and an untitled story by Dallas. All the stories you heard this week were narrated and produced with the permission of the respective authors. And if you've got a story to share, make sure you send it to stories at oddtrails.com. And if you want to get access to ad-free versions of all of the episodes at a higher bit rate for the best quality listening experience, head over to patreon.com forward slash oddtrails to sign up today. And don't forget to check out the new episodes of my other podcasts, Let's Not Meet a True Horror Podcast and the Old Time Radio Cast at crypticcountypodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Stay safe. Peace out.